to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, calls are mounting to abolish the cops on U.S. college campuses. And where does the U.S. get the right to dictate who governs Haiti? We'll speak with a longtime fighter for Haitian sovereignty. But first, it's been confirmed that the nation's best-known political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, has been infected with COVID-19. Abu-Jamal is a senior political prisoner, having spent the last 39 years in the Pennsylvania prison gulag. Longtime Mumia supporter Dr. Joanna Fernandez held a press conference to demand that Abu Jamal and all elderly inmates and political prisoners be set free. Fernandez was joined by Mumia's movement doctor, Ricardo Alvarez, and Reverend Keith Collins, who has known Abu Jamal since they were both youngsters in Philadelphia. Dr. Fernandez said setting Mumia free is good medicine as well as justice. At some point, we have to ask the question, who are we as a society? Who are we who are willing to allow elderly people, disproportionately black and Latino, to die in their elder years prematurely, unnecessarily, because of the vindictiveness of the criminal justice system? In the 1980s and 90s, the United States mass incarcerated black and brown communities that the system could not employ. Today, we talk about joblessness and deindustrialization as if it were a white working class problem. But before it became a white working class problem, it was a black working class problem in Philadelphia. It was a Latino working class problem in Philadelphia when industries evacuated, left the cities en masse. And what did the state do? It warehoused people that it could not employ. And those people were black and Latino it was a system that was vindictive and punitive and draconian, and people got life sentences and 40-year sentences uh, for crimes that today are not crimes, like drugs, right? Marijuana. This is an industry in American society today. Well, those people who were imprisoned in the 1980s and 90s who got 40-year sentences and life sentences are now elderly in American prisons. And I remember that when I first visited Mumia in general population, I was shocked that the men around him were coming in in wheelchairs and were um, very infirm uh, using canes. Again, if we say that black lives matter, it has to matter when it comes to imprisoned people of all shades, poor, black, Latino, who are the victims of a system uh, that seeks to keep people at the bottom of society in their place, a system that used white supremacy and racism to scapegoat uh, the black and Latino working class in America for all of the problems in this society. Mumia is a representative of a broader crisis uh, of unjust, unfair, racist incarceration. He is an elderly man. He is an eloquent radio journalist. He is innocent. He was framed by the Philadelphia police and the Philadelphia establishment. This summer, the progressive DA of Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, was interviewed by Amy Goodman. And Amy Goodman asked him a pointed question about police corruption in the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. And Larry Krasner said at that time, 
It was in July or August of 2020 that, yes, Mumia's case is a microcosm of everything that is wrong with the criminal justice system, and it is a microcosm of the crisis of police corruption and tampering with evidence to obtain convictions on the part of the police. So we are saying Mumia is sick. He's been sickened by the system. He has been railroaded in, in the courts. There are six boxes that have emerged in this very building that point to the fact that the main witness in Mumia's case, Robert Chobert, was bribed to finger Mumia as the shooter of Daniel Faulkner. We are here to ask the city of Philadelphia, to ask this country, um, to stand with the common humanity of all of us, all of us who have faced illness, um, who've witnessed our loved ones die. And we are asking uh, the city, the media core, the nation, to bring our elderly people home. Let them go. They serve nothing in prison. They, they're doing nothing in prison but being held captive by a vindictive system. People over the age of 50 will not um, be, uh, be offenders again. They are sick. They, uh, they've been held by an unjust and criminal system. A system that is racist, that that targets people of color, and we need Mumia Abu Jamal, uh, who's desperately ill, um, and who needs assistance, medical assistance, to come home. Again, the conditions are labored breathing, and uh, uh, a weight on his chest, pressure and pain on his chest. If any of you felt this way, you would immediately seek help. Immediately, it would be no nonsense. Immediately, you would try to seek the best possible care to save your life. So we are going to now hear from Dr. Ricardo Alvarez, who's joining us from California. First of all, I want to begin by thanking Dr. Fernandez for giving us a beautiful and powerful understanding of just what is going on with regard to Mumia's health. But as Mumia makes clear, the health of all of our prisoners, our elder prisoners in COVID time. We begin with an understanding that the medical community is having a deeper understanding of COVID compassion to understand that racism is a public health crisis. This is through the American Public Health Association through counties across the nation and at the prestigious University of Pennsylvania, there's a national petition identifying racism as a public health crisis. We also begin by understanding that we're having this press conference to save and support the life of not just Mumia, but all our elders in prison during COVID. And Mumia makes clear that the challenges he's facing are faced by other elders. We also begin with an understanding that Mumia has a court-documented, legitimate basis for having a distrust of the medical system when you have a brilliant, nationally recognized hepatologist in Dr. Truskis, whose court documentation made clear negligence. I also want to say that the symptoms he is having are going to be treated by one thing, his freedom. We will be engaged in institutional distrust, which is legitimated by the fact that Mumia has been a target of state oppression through his whole life since a youth. His treatment is his freedom. Within the institutional medical system, he is, it is a healthy response for him to feel fear to seek care. Understand these conditions of COVID are so straining to be 
Alessandra Fernandez and the beautiful Pam Africa, but the family, the strains it puts on the supporters, the emotional strains it puts on us as we have to navigate a system for which we have to be a fierce defender of Mumia's life because we can't trust the system. The information that came to us came through lawyers. It came through lawyers to another lawyer because there's an open case acknowledging the harm that came to Mumia. And as a medical provider, we're part of a writhing community that's asking reporters and the public to emerge with COVID compassion, with a clear understanding. It's time now to free our elders in prison. Dr. Alvarez, can you tell us a little bit about the work you do? For 25 years, I've worked on the front line at a community health center that takes all comers. If you are homeless, if you are undocumented, if you are drug addicted, we take all comers. And in that 25 years of frontline work in different capacities, as director of the HIV clinic, as medical director of the clinic, and now as a clinical coordinator of innovation, in this capacity, what we understand is that there's an enormous amount of trauma that's suffered by our community. And that trauma is a result directly of racism and state policies for which we accept the premise that we can brutally imprison our community. And in that work, in that trauma, what we've appreciated is that there's a deep distrust of institutions, which we have to validate. It is healthy for a prisoner to question whether or not a vaccine coming into their body is right or wrong. It is healthy for a prisoner to question that. The fact that we're having these conversations, Dr. Fernandez, is rooted in a deep understanding that we must validate this distrust because we have to earn the trust. Thank you so very much, Dr. Ricardo Alvarez, for the compassion with which you've spoken to us uh, today. I think doctors across the country can learn um, from compassionate care of black people, of uh, migrants, Latinos, uh, prisoners uh, here in the United States and across the world. Thank you so very much for your service uh, to Mumia and to all imprisoned people in the United States. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to now uh, give it up to uh, invite Reverend Collins um, to uh, share some words with us. Thank you so very much, Reverend Collins, for joining us this morning. Good morning, everyone. I had the privilege to spend three hours with Mumia, July 4th, 2019. Three of the most powerful hours of my life. I've been involved in prison ministry for over 30 years. I'm not a part of any nonprofit industrial complex. I do it because it's the right thing to do. That's right, I don't that's get paid right. to do it. I don't right. do it for, for cl clicks and likes. Yeah. And I grew up listening to Mumia as a teenager. And he told me that he wanted to change the name of the high school. He started as a teenager, as an activist, and he was targeted by Mayor Rizzo and all the other elite of the establishment of this city from a teenager. And yet he continued to fight for the people. We are running gulags here in America. They are letting people die and not even notifying the families. Mr. Wetzel, blood is on your hands. Mr. Wolf, blood is on your hands. There was a gentleman that was up for release to parole and he died because Mr. Wolf did not sign the release papers in time. This is the level of disconnect and dis the disconnect and totally disregard for human life. The scriptures encourage us in Roman in Hebrews 13:8 to remember those that are in bonds. See, the system wants us to forget about Mumia, wants us to forget about Russell Schultz, wants us to forget about all the political prisoners, all those that have been incarcerated by an unjust system. They want us to forget, but we're here to remember. 40 years later, we're still here. Mr. Krasner came in office as a reformer, and he did some good things as a civil rights attorney. But now we're talking about not just doing a good thing, but doing the right thing. 
we're not playing morals here. We're, we're not playing a little right thing, but I can't do the big right thing. No, Mr. Krasner, do the right thing. Exercise your consciousness to do the right thing. When you study this case, when you look at the documentaries, you'll see that the evidence shows clearly that he could not have shot Officer Faulkner. Clearly. When you look at the statements of Judge Stabo, when you look at the statements of the police, how they were convicted of perjury, there is no way that a thinking person can say that this man is not innocent. And, and at the minimum, he's deserving of a new trial. He's deserving of the evidence to go into court. So we're standing here today to say our brother is sick. I'm talking to a brother right now in Dallas that's on the verge. They're locked down at 23 hours a day. They have no COVID precaution. They have no masks. They have no sanitization. We can't depend on the system to say who is or is not infected with COVID. He needs an independent test. He needs, he needs to be released as all of our elders do. Because guess what? They're not coming to Lafayette Hills. They're not coming to Old City. They're not coming to all the elite creme de la creme. They're coming to the hood to be with the people that love them. They're coming to be with the people that respect them. They're coming to mentor our youth. They need someone to look up to. So we're saying here today in front of all the people that we believe, we believe that Mumia and many, many, many others are deserving of that chance. You can't play God. Mr. Krasner, you're walking in the same footsteps of Ed Rendell. You're walking in the same path of Lynn Abraham. You're walking in the same path of all inspector trafficking in black bodies. And it's time to stop. It's time to stop. It's time for the people to rise up. Yes. We don't want certain other people maybe not to get in office, but it's time now to say we are here for the greater good. And the greater good is to release all of our political prisoners and all of our unjust prisoners. The scripture says I was in prison and you visited me. And as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So what is happening in the treatment of Brother Mumia and all the other men and women is unto Christ. They say that they are Christian. They say this is a faith-based nation, but it doesn't act like a faith-based nation. It doesn't want to expand and expose the truth. It doesn't want to treat everyone with the same equal rights and a due process of law. So we're here today on this day, on this Wednesday, to say before the whole world, we stand in solidarity, not only with Mumia, but all those. I talked to Sister Pam this morning, and as, as the professor said, yes, this is stress. This is trauma. Not only is it epigenetic trauma, but it's trauma that we experience as we visualize this every day. She is under doctor's orders to take time off because she might have a stroke. This is how involved you become when you are passionate about the truth and about justice. So we're here today to express our passion for Mumia and all the others that are unjustly incarcerated. And we ask that Mr. Krasner, along with Governor Wolf, do the right thing at this time, that we not see another senseless, needless death. And we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. We want to be on the right side of history, not on the right side of politics, but the right side of history. That was Reverend Keith Collins speaking from Philadelphia. The modern free speech movement began on California college campuses in the 60s and soon led to demands that campuses be free of police. But instead, cops have become even more deeply entrenched and militarized at U.S. colleges, just as in the larger society. Dylan Rodriguez is a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California at Riverside, and he has plenty of experience combating the cops. Dr. Rodriguez says both the university system and its campus police are undergoing a crisis of legitimacy. There's a historical context to this that goes back about 10 years. So it's about the last 10 years that you see an intensification in the University of California in particular around instituting what I would call a re-legitimation or kind of crisis management around police presence on the campuses. They meaning the administration generally might refer to it differently. They might call it reform, right? They might call it something else. They might call it, you know, auditing. They might call it a reflection. But what it really is, it's a crisis of legitimacy. And it's really interesting to look analytically at what got this trend going. 
And by and large, it was the November 18, 2011, so-called UC Davis pepper spray incident. So I think probably almost everybody that's hearing us and reading us has probably seen the image because it turned into a meme of this guy named John Pike, Officer John Pike, spraying this kind of yellow chemical spray yes. at a bunch of nonviolent nut protesters. So you remember that, right? So that, yes. that's right there on the university. That's on the University of California Davis campus, November 18, 2011. It was when the Occupy movement was in full gear. And, you know, I actually wrote about this because right around the same time, there was a much more violent police response at my home campus at UC Riverside when students, staff, faculty, and community members were protesting tuition hikes, effectively tuition hikes, when the UC regents were on the campus. And there was a massive police presence. There was nothing like one individual officer pepper spraying. It was a phalanx of UC officers, Riverside sheriffs. There might have been some LAPD there. There were helicopters up in the air. There were people in sniper positions on building roofs because it was a mass demonstration. And the violence of the police was more expensive. They had riot gear on. They were shooting people with uh, so-called non-lethal ammunition. You know, I have students who still have scars on their bodies from when their flesh got torn out that day. I have a good friend of mine who I'm organizing alongside in the UC Riverside Cops Off Campus Coalition, who still is a lecturer there, who was arrested supposedly for uh, assaulting a police officer. And of course, that, that was an absurd charge that went away. But that was a massive incident of police violence. It didn't get as nearly as much circulation and play in corporate media. And the reason is this, and this is what I wanted to emphasize, the UC Davis pepper spray incident went viral, not only because the image is so conducive to a meme, but also because the targets of that pepper spray violence were white students and Asian American students by and large, right? I mean, those students were primarily that. So it was a kind of bona fide image of innocence, right? And I mean that, I'm putting scare quotes around that term innocence, right? What you had was an assumptively innocent group of nonviolent protesting white students with a few Asian American students in the mix who were being sprayed down by this officer who had his helmet and his face shield on and sprayed him. So so it was conducive to a certain kind of liberal sympathy, um, a liberal white multiculturalist sympathy and outrage for that matter, right? Like how dare the police pepper spray these white students at a university campus who are nonviolently protesting seated in prone position with their heads down and whatnot. Now, the scene at my campus was very different because it's a brown campus, it's a black campus, it's a working class campus, the first generation campus, you got people from the community there, and it was also a mass demonstration. Now, the images are no less meme-like, right? But they're also less conducive to extracting liberal white multicultural sympathy because it looks like a confrontation because that's what it was, right? You had people who were not taking from the UC regents, were not going to take tuition hikes, and were confronting the regents on this, and because the regents are too cowardly to actually speak to people in any kind of serious and substantial and protracted way, they sent the police presence out to protect them. And that's what the competition prevented. Ever since that time, the University of California has been working, administration that is, has been working overtime to try to win back basically public confidence in the University of California police presence. There's been a series of administrative task forces instituted by the UC Office of the President really kicking into gear when Janet Napolitano, who I remind everybody, was under Obama with the Secretary of Homeland Security in the way she was one of the top cops in the world. Under her, there was a series of task forces, administrative task forces. I'll tell you also, when I was serving as the Academic Senate Chair at Riverside for two terms, I was part of an Academic Senate kind of independent task force that was reviewing police policy. And we wrote a pretty rigorous 150-something-odd page review of police policy that was summarily ignored by the UC Office of the Presence. It was as if we never did it. It's as if that our review, our review never even existed. And that's all, you can still actually find that online. So this has been going on for 10 years. There's been multiple task forces and there's been really no change. What this is, is a bunch of wheels spinning, a bunch of gears spinning in order to generate a kind of appearance, a kind of ceremony, a ritual of trying to deal with what gets framed by the administration as relatively isolated and momentary flaws or corruptions or misbehaviors on the part of the police department. And so that's the backdrop for what goes down in 2020. And that's the backdrop for this UCR FTP statement on campus safety task forces. And that is the backdrop for the circulation of the petition that's out there now. That's right. That's right. By the way, that petition wasn't even, we didn't even make an incredible effort to try to get, you know, a national or global list of signatories for that. We were pretty local and provincial. We were pretty much staying within Southern California, the so-called Inland Empire area, which is what they call this region where, where Riverside is and 
other cities kind of east of Orange County. We call it the Inland Empire. So we, you know, we got 200 plus signatory, individual and organizational signatories just based on that. And really what it was to put the UC Riverside administration on notice that people were seeing right through this millionth administrative task force on policing, which they call campus safety, that was being put in front of us. And it was really, I think a lot of people just felt their intelligence and their sensibilities were insulted by the very existence of this task force and the pretensions that it was somehow actually addressing the ways in which people are no longer standing for, they're no longer tolerating anti-Black police terror. I mean, that's really what this is. So people were kind of pushing back and saying, no, nah, this, is, this, is, this is a joke, right? And how dare you put this in front of us as if this is some kind of serious and legitimate response to the normalized presence of police terror on our campus, especially to the extent that, you know, it, it, it surveils, it criminalizes, and it frequently directly incarcerates, meaning detains, incarcerates, harasses our Black friends, loved ones, and colleagues, including students and staff and community members. Now, you already gave a, a rundown of the very rich history of resistance to cops on campus at the University of California, bringing us almost to the present when 20 million or more folks took to the streets back in June demanding abolition of the police. That's right. Much That's of right. the ruling class pretended that it was now identifying with that popular movement. But That's right. university systems have always pretended that they were on the side of popular movements while in fact resisting them. That's right. Here's what happens is what you're calling this moment of administrative identification, whether the administration is the Trump administration or the Biden-Harris administration or the University of California administration. There's an administrative crisis response that kicks into high gear as soon as there are mass movements that, number one, are identifying a normalized logic of state violence, particularly anti-Black state violence or, in other cases, some form of racist violence or even colonial violence, meaning racial capitalist violence. As soon as movements emerge that identify that logic, that normalized logic, those normalized systems as the problem, right, meaning that, that these mass movements are not identifying an individual isolated incident as the problem. They're identifying the way the system, a particular system normally operates as the problem. These administrative regimes kick into full crisis management mode. And what they do and what everybody needs to understand, what they do usually first and foremost, in addition to mobilizing a repressive police presence to start to criminalize the movement, let's never forget that, right? The first thing, one of the first things they will do, they'll mobilize a police presence to repress the movement and then to criminalize it. You know, recently it's been, oh, it's Antifa, it's Antifa, it's Antifa. I know a million people that identify as Antifa. Not a single one of them looks or sounds or acts like anything the right wing or these different administrations put out there, right? It's nothing like, these are anti-fascists. <laughs> These are people who actually want peace. They want to fight against fascists. So they'll put a so-called boogeyman out there called Antifa, and then they'll put a police presence out to start putting things down. They'll knock people to the ground. They'll shoot people. They'll arrest people. At the very same time, and this is the piece that we miss a lot, I think. Sometimes this slips by us. These administrative regimes will then change the language. They'll force feed and change the language of the movement itself and turn it into something other than what it actually is. They'll start calling it a police reform movement. And they will change the debate. They will try to change the parameters of the conflict to shape the conflict around a contestation over whether or not to engage in police reform. When in fact, what the people in the streets are actually doing is they are working either explicitly or are very close to an abolitionist analysis of that system, particularly the police. So what the powers that be at the university and in corporate America, and they are inextricably linked, is trying to create yep. a police reform movement that has already been transcended by the people's movement. Yes. So this is the job of crisis management within these administrations. It is a form of political and cultural repression. Is They will force feed the language of police reform Police reform becomes the paradigm in which they are trying to compel everybody to wage their debates and confrontations within. And so what that means is for folks who are on the street saying, no, the problem is actually the police, right? The problem is actually the police, the existence of the police, the logic and the system and the normalized violence of the police. That is the problem. That gets completely thrown out the window. And oftentimes it actually gets criminalized, right? If it doesn't get trivialized and just disavowed and thrown out the window, it actually gets criminalized. People who are advocating toward abolitionist approaches to rethinking the presence of police get thrown in as if they are some kind of domestic terrorists. 
Now, tell us what uses this petition, which you were frank about not so much energy was put into circulating it. But now that it's out there, what uses will this petition be put to? I think what it helps do is it establishes a template. And by the way, the petition is kind of drawing from the University of California system-wide Cops Off Campus campaign that put a statement out in early January, basically critically disavowing, critically dismissing the rise of these campus safety task forces, right? It was a very short social media post. And what the petition that you're talking about did was it took the statewide Cops Off Campus statement and it elaborated it. And it spoke specifically about the UC Riverside version of campus safety task force. And the feedback that we've gotten from other universities, other institutions, not even just universities and colleges, but other people, other movements, other organizations, is that the analysis that's in that statement forms a really useful blueprint for other people that are engaged in confrontation with similar kind of police reform or so-called public safety or campus safety task forces that are being set up by, you know, mayor's offices, by, you know, junior colleges, by other kinds of institutions that are trying to scramble to, again, re-legitimate a police presence in the face of this massive year-long-plus confrontation with police terror. That's what I think it serves in its best interpretation. It serves as, you know, a contribution to an ongoing discussion about how to radically confront the logic of police reform, because the logic of police reform really just reproduces police presence. This is to paraphrase one of my favorite authors, Franz Fanon, right? I think as soon as we are in a situation where administrations are responding to mass movements that are trying to abolish anti-Black terror, colonial terror, you know, racial capitalist terror, homophobic, misogynist, transphobic terror, Islamophobic terror, the moment administrations confront our struggles to abolish these forms of terror with a proposal for a task force, we must begin to sharpen our collective knives. That is when the skepticism, the suspicion, and I think the righteous pessimism has to be cultivated into a collective analysis and a rejection of the very premises of these task forces. And here's what I will say we struggled through at UC Riverside. We need to refuse to participate in these task forces. We need to refuse to participate in them. And let me tell you this, Glenn, because I believe this is part of the task force statement. It is so cynical. These administrative efforts, these administrative scrambles to re-legitimate the police are so cynical that in the case of UC Riverside, the campus safety task force was assembled and it appointed two black students from UC Riverside without even asking them. Both of these black students were in conversation with the Cops Off Campus campaign, and they both disclosed they were not actually asked for their consent to be appointed to this task force. In fact, and get this, one of these students was no longer enrolled at UC Riverside by the time the task force started to work. And their name was not even removed from the online list of participants in the task force until last month, meaning January 2021. So for about three months, maybe more than three months. But this is how cynical and how deeply anti-Black in this kind of like liberal tokenistic way these task forces work is they, they know, meaning the administration, they know that, or in their minds, they believe that they have to have some kind of symbolic, tokenized, siloed Black presence on this task force for it to have any kind of credibility. And so they just do it. They just do it by administrative executive fiat. And that's something that we work through in our system-wide and UC Riverside coalition was to condemn that. Say, no, we reject the premises of that arrangement. We reject the kind of symbolic, tokenized anti-Blackness of the way these task forces are assembled. And not only that, we urge people to refuse to participate in these things and to refuse to accept the parameters of debate that these task forces try to set up. We have to reject it. That's the message of this, of this task force statement that UCR FTP put out. We have to reject the premises and the credibility of these task forces. The UC Riverside example, they held two town halls, so-called town hall meetings. The first one, a bunch of our folks went to, you know, abolitionists and abolition-minded people went to and basically nailed the task. It was all online, of course, but we basically nailed the task force with all these sharp analytical questions. And I almost felt sorry for them, right? Because I think the task force was not well-prepared. I don't think it's taken its charge very seriously. They clearly don't know the basic literature. They don't know the basic data around police violence. The police chief is part of the task force. I mean, that's almost always the case. It's almost always the case that some member of the police force, usually the police chief, will actually be on the task force. What that does, it rules out so many conversations, so many considerations. So it's no different, Glenn, I'll stop after I say this. 
I know this is probably an incomplete analogy. It's not a perfect analogy, but I'll say it because I think some people can get their heads around this pretty easily. It's not that far from creating, for example, a task force on the climate crisis and insisting that for the sake of fairness and objectivity, you must appoint several people to a climate crisis task force who are actually in denial of climate change. It's no different than that. That's what it's like to have police presence on a so-called police reform or campus safety task force. It is no different because these people are in complete systemic denial. That was Professor Dylan Rodriguez speaking from the University of California at Riverside. The Haitian people have made it plain that they want to be rid of Jovenel Moise, the incredibly corrupt president imposed on Haiti by the United States. Thousands of Haitians have been in the streets for weeks, demanding that Moise step down. But the regime refuses to budge and has responded with gunfire that has left dozens dead. Dr. Jamima Pierre is an anthropologist in the Department of African American Studies at UCLA and an activist with the Black Alliance for Peace. Pierre was interviewed by Dr. Jared Ball on his influential podcast, I Mix What I Like. She says Washington is the source of Haiti's misery. The U.S. is responsible for the complete destabilization of Haitian democracy and the complete loss of Haitian sovereignty over at least since, you know, from, 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 from a long time ago, but at least since 2004. And I think as responsible citizens who should, especially as Black people living in the heart of empire, it is our responsibility to actually force the empire to contend with our own dissatisfaction with their imperial machinations outside of the U.S. And I think it's our responsibility as Black people to support, you know, the fight for sovereignty and liberation elsewhere. I think that's where we're coming from. I do think part of it is, you know, Haiti is has lost its sovereignty and people won't tell you this. We're under occupation since a formal occupation, this latest one since 2004, since the U.S. led, U.S., Canada, France led coup d'etat against you know a popular president that was um elected and so we do that what we want to focus on is actually the imperial machinations because there are three major groups that make all the decisions in haiti that pay for everything that pay for elections that do all kinds of things and and i think it's easy to focus on this black dictator in the making right as opposed to thinking about how it is that the u.s the Organization of American States, which actually is controlled by the U.S. and Canada, and then the United Nations, which has had Haiti under occupation since 2004. What is their role? These major Western, white Western powers, what is their role in Haiti? And how are they continuously supporting dictators, destabilizing democracy, and completely ridding the country of its sovereignty? And so I think that's what we wanted. And I think our next move is to actually protest against you know the OAS, against the UN occupation, and then against the US. And I think this is connected directly to our US out of Africa campaign because it's ultimately an anti-imperialist campaign, right? And, and the fact that you have the US military all over the continent, right? You know, and we know our brother Obama, you know, is really the, the catalyst for, you know, is making Africans, AFRICOM, which is the Africa command, making it stick on the continent because George Bush couldn't get anybody to, to do it, but Obama came in as the brother that he is, brother, and um, and did it, right? And so and so part of it for me is is about having, you know, this met, you know, for, forcing, pushing empire from within. And that's our job. We have the responsibility because we are in the heart of empire to fight against empire because the people outside are suffering, they're trying to live and survive. And, and, and I actually think there should be protests all over the country about, about what the US and the UN and the OAS are doing in Haiti. You know, same as, you know, the same way that I think we should have protests against the bombing of Syria, but you know, I do think we have a responsibility. I think there is a connection to be made between the current administration's willingness uh, or ability to find the resources and the time and the energy and the focus and the policy development to, to the extent that there was any to, to bomb Syria, while not only continuing to support, as you said, the dictator in the making in Haiti, 
but the the ramping up of AFRICOM throughout the continent of Africa and even the in, in, you know, uh, increased policing of black people, so-called citizens here. Uh, and someone in the in the comments did raise uh, says that, uh, you know, well, I'll just pull it says no disrespect intended, but the whole melanated planet is under uh, occupation. <laughs> She's right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I mean, so I don't know if I'm just asking you to, to repeat yourself or if there's if there is more to say about that connection, this this encirclement. Well, there, there's definitely yeah. a lot to say. I mean, it is U.S. empire is actually crazy, right? I mean, the last time we could say, you know, the sun never sets on an empire was when the mm. British ruled the world, right? Um, and so, and I feel, you know, I think that we're almost there, right? Especially the encirclement of Asia, you know, and then the attempt, because the other thing, actually, I, I, to detour a bit, what's happening in Venezuela, we have to really pay attention to, right? Because the first thing uh, uh, Biden did before he even became inaugurated was recognize some dude that wasn't even elected, right? Like one Guaido, right? <laughs> As the president of Venezuela, right? And that, that's the first thing he does, right? And so part of that is to think about the continuation of US foreign policy in um, around the world and that Biden does that, but also when it comes to black countries, because the other, the second thing that Biden allowed was the continued deportation of Haitians. So within the first month, there've been I think almost 30 or 40,000 Haitian, you know, Haitian refugees and immigrants deported, right? So we think about that, but we also think about the continuation of the funding of the US military police. The other thing that the US did that we no one's talked about, they brought in the Colombian police to work with the Haitian police to control Haiti. So this was announced by the US embassy last week. Now, you know, Colombia is, is under right-wing government and is brutal towards its people. And so you think about, okay, so of all the things that you can help this so-called poor country, right? What do, you, what do you do? You build prisons, you arm their military, and then you bring in another worse country's military, to, you know, police to come in and subvert and subvert black sovereignty. And so, so I do think there's that, I do think there's something about US imperialism that as it's reaching its end, because that's what it is, right? It's just, there, it's the last gaps, you know, as it's reaching its end, it's going to wreak havoc all over the world. And we already see it in terms of, you know, all the propaganda against China, the build of the military against China, the attempt to take the oil in Syria. You know, at least Trump said, you know, we're, we're taking the oil, we've got it. Biden Bomb is just- the oil, take the oil. Right. And, and, you know, the war in Syria has been illegal from the very beginning. You know, that was Obama. You know, Obama got into this when long before, you know, we had no reason to be bombing Syria, you know. And so so I do think I do think there's a link as we're spending all this money, wasting all these money, uh, all this all these billions and trillions of dollars killing people. You cannot provide a $15 wage. You know, you 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 want to give the police here more money. You don't give health care, you don't give student relief, you don't do anything, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, why is it that the U.S. is more interested in, in bombing and subverting democracy elsewhere than to taking care of its people? And, and I think as Black people, we have a responsibility to stop paying fealty, you know, to, to stop supporting this U.S. government. It's not good for you. It's not good for any of us. And if you have U.S. imperialism abroad, and impacting Black people abroad, it will come back home. It always comes back home. You know, drone warfare, the police, it always comes back home to us. And so we have to be very careful and be very clear and specific about what we want to do. And, and it's about getting rid of U.S. imperialism. That Dr. King line, the, the, the bombs that drop overseas explode at home. Exactly. Um, they always come home. They always come home to us. And we have to we have to remember that. We have to remember that. And you know, the US government has never been for black people. It was it was not meant for us. And I and I hope we recognize that, you know, and and, and fight against it and look for each other. And the other thing is, the other thing I wanted to say is we've always in this country and elsewhere depended on connections with black people abroad, right? We've always wanted, we've always depended on support from black people abroad. And I think we need to give support. Well, because there's no way within this world that is globally dominated by white people and the white powers, there's no way we can do anything within the nation framework, right? We have to be global and we have to see, we have to go back to the way that 
we saw colonialism, right? Because right now we, it's still a colonialism. It's neo-colonialism all over the African continent, the Caribbean, Latin America. So we have to go back to these moments where we see ourselves in this country as an internal colony within this empire and then reach out to other people who are suffering from neo-colonialism. Yeah, I, I forgive me for doing this, but but I, I, I I'm I'm in some way selfishly just looking for your help on this because I don't like I don't like my responses at all to this question or these questions. But but I, I, when you say, for instance, that it's it's the responsibility or you, you feel that it's the responsibility of black people to hear or elsewhere to feel a concern for black people elsewhere, how do you convey that? Maybe to the people you deal with on a day to day basis, your students, maybe I don't know, like. Um, for instance, you know, it, who understandably in many cases are struggling to look beyond their own neighborhoods to, to under, you know, in, in terms of, you know, dealing with the, the um, uh, I don't know, the, the, the vagaries of, of, of oppression and, you know, in their own lives. How, so how do you ask people in, or, or what value to their own lives do you think it brings to, to say sort of, if you could just lift your head up a little bit higher to see beyond that immediate horizon to other black people suffering as well, uh, whose support, you know, you would benefit from and vice versa. Um, I don't know. How do you, other than maybe, you know, like joining organizations like Black Alliance for Peace, et cetera, you know, uh, how, how do you encourage people to see it to, to, to under, I don't know, to, to, to no, recognize that important question because you always I always get well we're struggling here and we're you know we don't have time you know we're trying to eat and I get it right we're trying to eat and we don't have time to to think about what's going on um in Haiti or in Uganda or you know um all over the continent or in Venezuela but think about it this way so why is it that all the money that can support the U.S. citizens is you being used to bomb other places to go elsewhere. Like, so first of all, you you know, the US state is a racist state. It was born as a racist state. It will always be a racist state and we will never be fully full citizens in this country. So let's be clear on that. And I know people have been holding out hope that the US will accept black people. Let me get you, you know, get, get out of that one, right? So, so there's that, right? So, but the other thing is, it is important to point out to people that it has always been international solidarity that's helped us, right? And so I think, for example, the example I give when I teach is, you know, in the 50s and 60s, as African nations were becoming independent and people in the U.S. were still under Jim Crow, right? Um, and then you had, and I, in, and I know you're in D.C., so I, you know, I used to talk to old Africans when I was doing research in D.C. Um, who came during the 50s and 60s who would say, you know, when they got there, the white people would tell them, stay away from the black people and so on and so forth. But the other thing, what they would say also is that the U.S. was embarrassed by the fact, by, by what it thought that Africans might re report to about them outside, right? So one of the things that actually sped up the, um, you know, um, um, uh, desegregation was the fact that you had all these African um, people, diplomats walking around D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, getting treated <laughs> in similar ways as African-Americans, getting mistaken for African-Americans. And then the U.S. not in the propaganda being used by Russia and China against U.S. racism because the U.S. was so afraid of losing, you know, the, the war to, you know, the propaganda war to the Soviets or to socialism and communism. So it, it, it hastened desegregation, right? In addition, of course, to, to protest. And of course, we can never downplay protests. But I do think there is something to be said about the fact that this is a nation that does not accept its Black people. And so if we if we start with that basis, then we have to know that if we make connections, then it makes it makes it really um, it really um, would help us in the long run, because then you have you'll have help outside. Right. And we have to think about all our leaders. I mean, think about Malcolm X, you know, and think about the people. Think about even the Black Panthers and their solidarity networks. Right. You know, from Palestine to Tanzania. So we have to think about the fact that Black people have always depended on solidarity across nations, understanding that the nation, the nation state doesn't help us. And so I know it's a long-winded way to, to answer, and it is something I think we do need to, those of us in the U.S., to really come up with a very good set of, a, a good language to explain to people who are struggling every day to see how 
you know, their oppression is linked to oppression of black people abroad. But the thing I have to also say is like, look how black people are treated everywhere. Like how many Africans drown in the Mediterranean, right? That nobody says anything about, right? How about how many times does a US drone bomb a Somali, you know, Somali town, right? How many Somalis have died, right? And so part of that is we have to remember that these things matter. Uh, and, and that we are black people, but we also black people with very long histories of internationalism. Yeah, I agree with our, our comrade here, Netfa. Uh, well, Leah also, Soda, uh, hashtag Soda, Solidarity of Dispersed Africans. And then, of course, uh, treatment of Black people within US, the U.S. explains U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you know, as Malcolm said, the police do locally what the military does internationally. Right. You, know, you can't understand yeah. Mississippi if you don't understand the Congo. All of those things still work. They do. But and you just, have to remember- yeah. When the U.S. first occupied Haiti in 1915, it sent soldiers from the South, from the segregated South. And the racism of these soldiers against the Haitians, you know, the the thousands of people killed and forced into labor camps. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's what we that's what this country, not we, that's what this country exports. Right. And if they hate you here, they hate black people elsewhere, too. You know, and it's your the other thing is it's your tax dollars. It is your tax money going to like destabilize Haiti and bombing Somalia. So we have to. Yeah, think I mean, about that's that. what I, I do. I even sometimes just encourage the, my version of what Dr. John Henry Clark used to call the essential selfishness of survival and saying, listen, you know, you could just simply you know, the argument could just simply it's not about, you know, I personally have to love every Haitian or, or Ugandan or anything, you know. We're not asking for some blind, you know, hand-holding silliness. We're talking about you. It could be just, just tactically even, and saying, you know, you could redistribute our tax dollars back to give us national free health care, and then just by that alone, you you deplete the resources being used to bomb all these other people. Right. Thank you for for jumping on, uh, sort of last minute, and helping us do this coverage of BAPS rally today. Thank you for yeah, for the context. No compromise, no retreat. You know, that's, that's how it. That's it. That's right. That's how that's right. No <laughs> compromise, no retreat. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the Black Left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.